The other thing I'm particularly proud of is that we never said that there was a class of book that people was beneath our dignity to, to handle, you know, and one can think of a couple of areas, romance novels, westerns, um, books on religion. Uh, traditional bookstores didn't do a very good job with, uh, with those, and we have a huge section now on uh, books on um, Christianity and other religions, and we do a, a decent job with romances and westerns and all the kind of peripheral areas that some bookstores would uh, ignore. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Mike and Emily Powell of Powell's Books. Powell's has its roots in Chicago, where Mike started his first bookstore in 1970. A few years later, his dad, Walter Powell, opened a used bookstore in Portland. In 1979, Michael joined Walter in Portland to open the store on Burnside, we know as Powell's City of Books. Emily is now at the helm of this third-generation family-owned business. Powell's celebrates their 50th anniversary next year. Yeah, I uh, was born in uh, Portland and lived in for, uh, in the Foster area for a few years. Lived at Corbett for a couple of years uh, with my grandparents, uh, and then lived at uh, 54th and Alameda through grade school and high school. And in high school, so you would have gone to Grant? Yes, Grant okay. High School. Rose City Park grade school, Grant High School. Yeah. yeah. And then how did you get into the fishermen? Well, life? my mother's family were fishermen. I, my grandfather and my two uncles were commercial fishermen on the Columbia Corbett, and I, my mother suggested I go out and work with my grandfather when I was 14, uh, the year I left grade school. And I uh, thought I was going out to learn to go fishing. I've realized in more recent times that really I was out there to babysit my grandfather, but <laughs> who couldn't cook or drive or any variety of things. And uh, But I picked up the, picked up the trade and, and uh, practiced it for seven years through uh, high school and college. And really, it was a very formative experience. I, Emily's tired of probably hearing me say it, but I, I say I learned the three valuable things, which was that if you're going to succeed at that or almost anything else, uh, keep your gear in good repair, have a sense of where the fish are, which is uh, really tradition and heritage, and then uh, keep your net in the water. Many years later, when I was working a trade show, my dad turned to me and said, I get it, your net's always in the water. So <laughs> I thought that was high praise, and yeah. I enjoyed it. And uh, that story has made its way into the business. I mean, many people know it now and say, you know, oh, we got to keep our net in the water. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good metaphor for, for, uh, for uh, you know, being adaptive, uh, being aware, uh, and keep trying new things. Well, and I think that is the theme for just about everybody I've spoken to is being adapt, adapting to changes yeah. because you don't make it in this world, whether you're a bookstore or a radio station, uh, if you can't adapt to changes. That's right. I like to point out that when I got in the business, the only piece of technology I had in my first store was a rotary telephone. Didn't have a cash register, didn't have cell phones, obviously, just that rotary phone. And we've come, you know, the distance we've come in those intervening 50-odd years, and um, now it's all about technology. It is all about technology. 
Now, the bookstore business uh, happened in 1971. No, 1970 yes. in Chicago. That's correct. Uh, the story behind how you got your start and your funding yes. uh, was, it was fun. It was fun. I uh, had run a student co-op bookstore for a couple of years on campus and then did some catalog sales to university libraries by mail for a year or two and was thinking about a store and my wife and I had driven through Santa Fe and got pretty excited about Santa Fe and were thinking of opening a store there and she was literally writing a letter um, to inquire about a job uh, in a Montessori school that she was suited for and when I got a call from a book dealer in Hyde Park, University of Chicago saying that he had been attacked in his store, felt unsafe, wanted to move in closer to campus, and there was a space available. And the reason the space was available was because there had been firebombing by the weathermen. Many people probably don't know or remember the weathermen, but they had a slogan, which is you don't have to know which way the wind is blowing to be a weatherman. And they had firebombed this real estate office thinking he was a slum landlord. And so they were rehabbing the space, and it was too big for my friend, the bookseller, he said, would I take half of it? And so I said, yeah, that would be a good way for me to learn the nuts and bolts of running a public store. And it was quite small, about a thousand square feet, no employees. I was loaned, I, I said to him when he made that offer, I said, you know, that's great. I said, but I don't have the capital to really open a store. And he said, well, there's some faculty people here that would like to talk to you about that. They're kind of an informal group to support local bookstores. And I said, okay, and they came to meet with me, and um, the fun thing about that group is uh, a sociologist, political scientist, and uh, one of the lit people, and the lit person was Saul Bellow. They loaned me uh, $3,000, and I used a 1000 of it to come out and visit my parents, <laughs> and then I went back and got to work. And uh, years later, Saul Bellow came to Portland and as part of arts and lectures and made his talk, and the first question from the audience was, did you start Powell's Bookstore? And I thought, well, this will be interesting. I mean, does he even know what they're talking about? And he said, no, I didn't uh, start Powell's Bookstore. Michael Powell did. I loaned him some money, and he paid me back. Mm -hmm. And I thought, good, I can still live here. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're, you skipped two parts that I always think are interesting. One is you and your friend had an arrangement. He was going to sell what kind of books? He was going to sell hardbacks, and I was going to sell paperbacks because in the old school of bookselling, Paperbacks were not thought of as real books and uh, and disdained in the used book world. We're now talking only about used books. And his specialty really was British history, and um, but he did a, a variety of things. So I agreed to sell the paperbacks. He'd sell hardbacks. Well, the paperbacks, of course, were very popular students. <laughs> so the students, you know, were coming to my store, not to his store, when we were side by side. And he finally got annoyed with that and tired of it and moved um, away. So I got his space and uh, was able to expand the store. Back of the building, there were some ladies who were writing and producing golden books, of all things, uh, children's books. Mm -hmm. And they went away, so I expanded into their space. And, and that is the size of the store. It still exists. Uh, Harper and uh, 57th Street in Hyde Park near the Museum of Science and Industry. And I see tracks. I was just there last weekend, um, and the fun thing is that I painted shelves primary colors so that I could say, oh, that section's over in the red, you know, those books are over in the red section, and I had about five primary colors. That paint job is still on those shelves 55 years later, and, 50 year, and it looks pretty good. You and know, of it, course, it's the origin of the colors, I the was room colors, say. right, at the store here in Portland. Yeah. With the nine so colors, now we yeah. can say it's in the gold room or the 
Yeah. So anyhow, the store looked good. And uh, the and other p- uh, point that I always think is interesting as a business person now, uh, you didn't know how much money to ask these folks for. No. So you made up a number. Yeah, the three thousand dollars was a total invention. I had no idea what it would take. And fortunately, another store just went out of business at the same time across the street. So I bought their inventory, and that and they were new books, and so that got me kickstarted. So everybody thought, oh, I had found this way to sell new books for half price, and that was. <laughs> a hit and uh, but it was fun business and Chicago was a great place to look for books and and which is what you do when you're selling used books you're out looking and um, and it, it grew from that within two three weeks uh, I had my first employee it just slowly grew over the years and you were there for how long well I was there till 79 mm-hmm. which was uh, when Emily was born and we um, had lived through some vicissitudes of life in Hyde Park and South Shore one of which was an amazing snowstorm where I couldn't find my car. We were kind of done. Yeah. And um, my dad said, well, why don't you come out and work with, uh, work with me? The business has gotten big enough that it's kind of a headache. And so we said, why not? And in the meantime, he had started. In 1971, right. he'd opened a store. He would he volunteered in a uh, thrift shop out on 82nd Street. Well, wait, what did he do first? He came out to your store in Chicago. That's right. You went on vacation. There's a theme of vacation. (laughs) Yes, right. I was was visiting Portland. He came out, worked for, I don't know, six weeks, two months, six weeks probably, in the store, built some shelves, scared all my employees away, (laughs) um, and uh, had a high old time and came back and thought it was a lot of fun. And so he started accumulating books um, and looking for a location. And he volunteered at this thrift shop, as I said, and uh, and he would buy the books that looked promising and then call me every night about, because he never got the time sorted out, so he would call late, drive my wife crazy, and he would say, these are the books I bought today, which are the good ones, which are the bad ones, and why, and we would have to go through the list of books. And he opened in, in uh, 71, um, that was a 4,000 square foot store, it's where Spartacus is today, and in the late... Now, in the mid-70s, about 76, he moved diagonally across the street in property that was run by, owned by Blitz Weinhardt, the brewery, mm-hmm. and, the Blitz, and the Weinhardt family. And he was in there in about an 8,000-foot store And in 79 when I came out. He was in that location. But the day I left Chicago, he called and said, uh, we've lost our lease. Uh, they're giving us a year to relocate, uh, so your job is to come out and find us a new location. And so I came out and started shopping around. The real estate market was really tight. There wasn't much. And I was looking in a building down on I am third, fourth, I can't remember, a sporting goods store, Kaplan Sporting Goods Store building, which was five stories but small floor prints. And it wasn't ideal, but it was something. But we couldn't quite ever get to terms. And then I'm out of town. Dad called and said, you know, the auto dealership down the street is for sale, and it's, um, it's a whole block. And I thought, mother of pearl what do we do with the whole block <laughs> but i uh i said okay we can talk about that and i came back and he he said this is the price and i thought between us we could probably make that work and we only had ambitions to occupy half of the block and then lease out the other half to tenants and that's what we did and then slowly grew into the block and then over the years uh twice went vertical um once with a three-story building and once with a four-story building and why was the dealership available well, it was American Motors dealership, and the American Motors business was not great. It's Wentworth uh, until literally last month or something like that. They had the dealership over on Grand Avenue, Subaru Chevrolet dealership, same yeah. family. 
I think they've just sold it and closed it. Didn't the owner of the particular shop have a customer misbehave? Oh, well, that was uh, one of my tenants was a, was a tow company that towed cars. And they towed it because it was an auto dealership. There was space to store cars. Right. And one of the customers came in and was so angry, he got in his car and drove right through the wall out on the barn side. And drove Whoa. Uh, so it was, it was having, being a landlord was not all that one might wish. No. Uh, the family that uh, I bought it from was the Wentworths. It was Bob uh, McMinimum. Uh, was uh, Mrs. Wentworth's husband, and he's the father of the McMenamins. Yeah. So it's a small town in it some way. It is a small town. And uh, he was a charming gentleman. And we went in, my dad and I, to talk to him about buying it, and he knew the store. And, you know, we were just a used bookstore, but he was comfortable having us talk to him. And he named a price, and that was non-negotiable. And I said, you know, well, what? You know, I poked at several things, and we got a longer, he offered to carry a contract for a while, and we got a longer terms on the contract and that was about it and you know and we agreed on everything as a handshake kind of thing and I said what do we do and he says I'm an attorney which he was and he said I'll draw up the papers and and why don't you write me a check for a couple thousand dollars earnest money and we're out on a sidewalk and I turned to my dad and I said I've taken longer to buy a tv set <laughs> <laughs> and uh so we own this building, and God help us. And, you know, the roof leaked and all sorts of things. But it still was, does. Still does, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe well less now. We've fixed it a few now. times. Yeah, but it's uh, – so that's how we got into that location, and that was 1980. Yeah. And uh, we moved, and in the middle of the move, Mount St. Helens blows up, and it's raining ash down on us. And I think, oh, my God, I'm, I'm about to create the largest archaeological book site <laughs> <laughs> in history. But, no, it stopped, and, and uh, life went on. And I didn't realize until I was doing the research last night that it was a car dealership. And is the ramp that goes up to the parking lot, that's original from the Oh, building? yes, the yeah. ramp that goes up to our and, wonderful parking lot, oh, yeah. which everybody loves. <laughs> um, well, the floors and the main you know, entrance on 10th are the original. I have to look at those, those next time. Floors. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. terracotta. Um, terrazzo. Uh, terrazzo, I'm sorry, yeah. terrazzo floors. And we made sure when we remodeled, we kept those floors. Yes, the, the ramp is the original ramp. Upstairs was where they did um, some of their uh, repair work, and they had a paint shop up there, and I don't know what else. And um, and so, yes, that's all original. And not much of the building is, is uh, not too much of the building is now the original building because we've re remodeled and mm -hmm. earthquake-proofed it, and, uh, and so there's been a lot of internal work. But we've kept the feel of the building as yeah. it was. Yeah, it, it, I... A lot of things jogged my memory as I was doing the research. The car auto dealership that I didn't realize, but I've been in town since the early 90s. And so I was here when you expanded in 99. And I swear I don't, I don't remember, I didn't remember exactly when it happened because it, all, it just always seemed to be what it is now. And then I looked at the old pictures, I'm like, Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So all these things sort of happen. Uh, the main the entrance on Burnside still pretty much looks like it. It does. Did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we changed, obviously, some things. Those used to be overhead doors on the Burnside yeah. side. They, they could roll up and run cars in and out. And, of course, we took those away and put in walls. But where the walls, where the doors were, are now windows. Yeah. And uh, um, so the good part of it still has a lot of that vibe. But yeah. it is... Um, change them. It is a big change, especially when you go to the upper levels and all of that part is new. And then that entrance uh, that faces into the Pearl District. Right. Uh, That's new. Yeah. yeah. 
I think you hit on an important point, though, with our business, which is it's our job to get better mm -hmm. over time, but not have you notice right. that we're doing anything differently. Right. Yeah. And it, it was at that. Not alienate anyone or exactly. make, feel not like Powell's at the end of the day. And I lived in Northwest when I first moved there, and then it was around, it was 98 when I moved into the Hawthorne area, so mm -hmm. I started going to the Hawthorne store mm -hmm. more, and I just... Yeah, I was looked at him like, it always seems like it's been that way. Um, but the feel inside hasn't changed. Even with the upper levels, it's still the high bookshelves and the, the cozy, cozy rows. And that's intentional. Absolutely. We experimented not so much in that store, but when we opened in Beaverton, I thought, well, we got to clean up our act for Beaverton because it's the suburbs, right? Maybe people want to have different expectations. And we quickly learned was that... It didn't feel right, didn't look right to have fancy, you know, high glossy shelves. What you wanted were the pine shelves and, uh, and it makes the book stand out and uh, look more attractive. It's warmer and, more intimate. and it's who we are. Yeah. yeah. And also, there's never enough room for books. Mm -hmm. I mean, no matter how big our store is, you need those bookshelves that are that tall. We couldn't work if we had four foot shelves or exactly. six foot shelves. Or, yeah. yeah. One of the things about being in the used book world is that the, the supply out is is always there and so the temptation is to buy more and you got to have a place for them you do have in, in recent years we've tried to make the store a little bit more comfortable for people who are walking through it and you know so created some more space for getting to an info counter but my dad and i think still have the same instinct walking through and saying where are all the you know there's not enough bookshelves you know <laughs> how can we have fewer books we should have more books you know That's well and i think we are yeah it is who you are and 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 like i said there's just that intimacy where um, the, the bookshelves are high and you just, you know, you spend hours looking at the books and it feels oftentimes like you're in your own little world, even though there are hundreds of people in, in the bigger store. We once did a focus group and not something I heartily endorsed, but it was interesting. One comment that stayed in my head was a woman said, we said, could, the point was, could we make it store bigger and not offend people? And she said, I don't care how big the store is as long as I can get to the sections I care about. And I thought, right, nobody shops the whole store. Yeah. You, you know, you have two, three, half a dozen sections that you're, that you're keen on. And as long as it's clear how do you get there and then you're in those aisles, the fact that the store is as big as it is is immaterial. And mm -hmm. so we were conscious to make it easy for people to find those sections that they're interested in uh, and aware that the size of the store was less important. Yeah. And so when you got back, you ended up uh, purchasing the store from your father. That was in 82. And in the 80s, you were expanding. You talked about the Beaverton store. You know, you had the travel book store in Pioneer Courthouse Square. And then the Hawthorne one opened up, what was that, 1986, I think? It yeah, was. I think that's correct. We opened one a year. Yeah. The Beaverton Travel, Hawthorne Airport, kind mm -hmm. of in a quick succession. Technical bookstore was in there right. around 2000. The Hawthorne store was, we did a scientific survey. I walked in one day and and the owner said, how would you feel about selling some books out of my, uh, it was pasta words. How right. would you feel about selling books out of here? And I said, well, we could maybe talk about that. And ultimately we had a section in the store and then there was a used bookstore next door, it became available. And so we moved into the used bookstore next door. And that's how we got started on Hawthorne. I was being facetious about the scientific survey. It was just <laughs> happening. Truth is, there's very little science. <laughs> there's very little science. In our story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that your intention? It was to expand? And were you thinking about, were there other places that you were thinking about that you never ended up expanding to? Well, we looked at um, Seattle and vaguely California. I really like the idea that it's an Oregon business. It's Portland-centric. I see a lot of companies that move to other communities and 
as they expand and I understand why they do that but it does seem like some they lose something in the process and I know there's a pride in Portland about Powell's and uh, I want to not jeopardize that sense of, of uh, ownership that the community has of the store and so I didn't pursue it very hard those stores that we did do the, the Hawthorne store which originally was about cookbooks and the travel store about travel books obviously a technical bookstore for a while well, there are experiments in specialty bookstores. The internet kind of um, took the wind out of those sales, uh, and we either diversified them in the case of the cookbook store, or um, we decided to consolidate the tribal bookstore and the technical bookstore into the Burnside store because there just wasn't an argument for keeping them as independent stores. But um, it was fun to experiment in that way. Beaverton was an experiment in, you know, could the model work in the suburbs? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it works. You know, we could do more. On the other hand, we're doing a lot. <laughs> Keeping track <laughs> of all of it is a big job for Emily. Right. And we're always interested. You know, my, that's one of the things you and I talk about is what, you know, what, what have you seen when you're driving around town and what do you notice? And But our main challenge is that of, I think, a lot of retailers, you need um, a location that has some reasonable rent Mm-hmm. and where there's approximately 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. pedestrian traffic. And the truth is there aren't many places in the world <laughs> where that exists. Um, and so we've been fortunate to be in the locations we're in currently. It's not so easy to find other ones that would have the right you know, cocktail right. to make it work for us. Yeah, one of the wonderful things about Hawthorne, and now more streets, but Hawthorne was one of the first, was nighttime foot traffic. Yeah. And that is important because if you have a store that only functions from 9 to 5, uh, it truncates their uh, opportunities to sell. and um, Or increasingly neighborhoods that don't start until 11. You know, the mm-hmm. people don't come out until midday starts. You know, that, that doesn't work so well either. Yeah. And I think Hawthorne probably is unique uh, neighborhood for that mm-hmm. because there's such a mix mm-hmm. of you know, there's the theater across the street, mm-hmm. you know, a number of restaurants and, mm-hmm. and you know, Fred Meyer and New Seasons just mm-hmm. down the street as well. It's a destination as well, too. It has mm-hmm. been. Yeah, it was one of the original places outside of downtown and perhaps the Pearl that people talked about going. And it, now there's lots of them, Alberta and, and uh, Division and, and 23rd. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, a, a good opportunity for us and remains a good opportunity in that sort of You're listening to Kink's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Mike and Emily Powell in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Mike and Emily Powell of Powell's Books. Powell's has its roots in Chicago, where Mike started his first bookstore in 1970. A few years later, his dad, Walter Powell, opened a used bookstore in Portland. In 1979, Michael joined Walter in Portland to open the store on Burnside that we know as Powell's City of Books. Emily is now at the helm of this third-generation family-owned business. Powell's celebrates their 50th anniversary next year. You guys are working on your 50s um, coming up up real soon. Could you imagine a Powell's in any other city in Portland? Because when I think of Powell's, I mean, it's so much Portland because Portlanders embrace 
reading. Maybe it's our, our climate. I don't know what it is. But I, I always said it was a rain, but it, I, I, who knows? Who knows? And, you know, I don't know that it's nice to think of ourselves as unique in that area because it uh, makes us feel very good. And certainly there's something to it. But there are very successful bookstores in other communities and uh, a reading public, public everywhere. It would be foolish to say that, you know, Seattle, Boise, whatever community you want to pick, you know, had illiterate people and people who didn't like reading. But but reaching out to those communities, well, that's really Emily's um, choice. But it is uh, challenging from the management side of things and from inventory and inventory control. There are lots of reasons why it's challenging. And the opportunities are there. But um, could Powell's work, people used to come and say, you know, could we have one in our city? And I said, sure you could. I said, but I'd have to move. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't want to. <laughs> and uh, in this case, Emily would have to move, and I don't think she wants no. to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are two, there are two you know, core issues to that question. I think any city potentially could have a Powell's in the sense that, to your point, Dad, you don't just have to have the weather or even book lovers. You have to have people who want a place to go mm-hmm. and to have an experience and to find information and entertain- entertainment, you know, escape, what have you. Um, but I'm going to put a little more credit on my dad here because he's been very involved in the architecture of this city. I think you have to have a city that's committed to making a downtown that works, mm-hmm. that has an infrastructure that allows people to get in and out easily, um, that has walkable streets and a variety of neighborhoods. And a lot of cities haven't committed the resources or haven't had the sort of community involvement that Portland has had that would allow that ecosystem to flourish where a place like Powell's could then come in and say, yes, I'd like to commit, you know, if we could find another place like that, I think we'd be interested. I don't want to move, but I think that's what you really need. Yeah. And it doesn't, is not easy to find. It's the right combination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then Emily, you, I mean, you grew up in the business, uh, but you went away for a little bit. Yes. Tell me about that, because you were in San Francisco for a while. Yeah. Well, I went to school in Philadelphia and, and came back, you know, in the summers. And then uh, when I finished college, I came back to Powell's and had a year working in the company in sort of roving positions to reacquaint myself with the business. And somewhere in the middle there, uh, Oregon State University's Austin Family Business Program reached out to us and said, you know, this is what we do. We have some expertise in family business, and we'd like to be helpful to you to ensure that this is a successful trans- transition to the next generation. And we said, sure, that sounds great. We're probably missing something. And they said, well, the first thing is the next generation, me, shouldn't be working here. You know, I should be out working for other people I'm not related to for a while and mm-hmm. see what it's like in the, you know, big, scary world and have a boss and, a, you know, regular old paycheck and have to sort of make my way for a while. And that was you know, fine, a little bit surprising maybe, but it made a lot of sense. And I also realized I was 21. It wasn't not that realistic to say I'm going to start now and be mm-hmm. here for the rest of my life. So um, so I moved to San Francisco and had some odd jobs and um, worked in real estate. What I always tell about my founding story is that the dinner table conversation growing up was always about the city mm-hmm. because of my dad's involvement in so many organizations. And so we talked about what was working or what wasn't. And so I went to college and studied urban planning and design and then did a little um, real estate work in San Francisco to kind of fit in um, to the gaps in my knowledge. And But then we realized, oh, I shouldn't have to, my dad shouldn't have to go to work every day for the rest of his life, if he doesn't want to, at least. And so <laughs> we started, we put a plan together and worked backwards and said, well, if 2010 is approximately a good date for when, you know, you should get to make some more choices with your time. 
um, then here are the steps we need to take so that I can be ready. And so in 2004, I moved back to Portland and started in an entry-level job in our marketing department because at the time we thought, well, the founding you know, of the business is about books and inventory, so I should bring something else. I should know more about the internet or technology or marketing. And so I started there and then took on every year a different position. I had, I joke that I had more bosses, you know, than <laughs> anyone in the company because this whole team would meet on a sort of semi-annual basis and say, well, how's she doing? Is she coming to work on time? Is she punching in and punching out? Is she behaving well and doing her job? And okay, well, she's ready for the next, the next position. So I moved around the company and eventually, um, ran our used book department. We hadn't had one person in charge of used books. We had locations in charge of their own inventory. So I did that and then eventually ran our internet business for a short time before realizing our technology was a mess and it needed to be rebuilt and went to business school. Uh, And then uh, my dad stepped back in 2010 and here we are. That was a lot of steps. There's a lot of steps. Emily's leaving out a couple of fun things. When she was in San Francisco, she was working for a realtor for a while, but before that, she uh, worked for a shop that sold lingerie and then a shop that uh, made wedding cakes. And so Emily <laughs> can make a really mean uh, wedding cake. Paper or birthday cake. <laughs> or birthday yeah. cake, yes. And it you was, like to say I worked in the three Bs, bras, baked goods, and books. Did I say that? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that. <laughs> any um, Buildings, I guess, would be the fourth B. Mm-hmm. We, had, uh, we were very fortunate, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to the Austin Family Foundation because as you can, t- I think you can tell Emily and I get along really well. Not all families have that, are that fortunate, but still the transition has steps that have to be taken and, and progressions that are important and, um, and to have somebody guide you through that so that, you know, you don't get sideways is important. And, and it wasn't just a family thing. It's, it's the whole business is involved in, mm-hmm. in understanding where Emily was up to and what I was up to and, and how that was going to work out and how to communicate all of that and and plan for it. And, uh, and the Austin Family Foundation um, at Oregon State was critical in that. And we were also exposed to stories of families that were not so successful in, yeah. in accomplishing this. My favorite one was the quote from one of their clients where the daughter said to her parents, if you give this business to my brother, you'll never see your grandchildren again. So we didn't want to get <laughs> into that situation. No. We really wanted to avoid that. We were that. motivated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and my mom's a therapist, so we <laughs> joke that part of our success is having a therapist mm-hmm. in the, on the family board, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yes. No, there's a lot of intention in place there. I yeah. didn't realize that. And it again, many of the themes in these podcasts, especially for family businesses, it, are the intentional stepping back, coming back, and really planning out the next steps for the transition. Yeah, and and, and we've done that. Emily, it's her business now. Um, I'm her poorest paid employee. It's true. <laughs> and uh, do you get reports on most is committed? He coming, is he coming to work on time? And <laughs> we don't track. No. We don't track that. But I do get an annual email from our HR system that says it's time for Michael Powell's annual review. <laughs> I said, well, that's going to be interesting. You <laughs> <laughs> spent way too much money on books this year. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm I'm having a good time doing what I do. I work with nice people, and uh, and it's uh, it's fun for me. It's what I started doing. Dad's in our warehouse. Yes. Yeah. yes, yes, absolutely, and I enjoy that. I think what people don't often appreciate is how big and, and complex an operation it is. It is, like I said, technology is everywhere. Uh, the internet, of course, plays a major role, and uh, we're the largest bookstore 
if not in the world, certainly in the United States, in that Burnside store, close to a million uh, items in inventory, a lot of employees, uh, mm -hmm. over 400 uh, employees, the management of that and make sure that it runs smoothly and, and efficiently is, uh, is a huge task that Emily has shouldered. I'm glad not to have that task, but it is uh, complex and for a bookstore uh, virtually unprecedented. And that creates its own unique universe because, for instance, there are no software systems designed for the kind of business we do. And so we're often thrown back on our own resources for developing technology. And there are a lot of uh, quirks and, and uh, challenges to, to running a, a bookstore of that size and complexity. And uh, the new and used books, which is probably the key to our success, which my dad introduced in the mid-70s and over my objections because I thought entering new books into a used book environment would be terrible. And he was 100% correct. And those kinds of um, flexibilities and innovations uh, take you out of other people's comfort zones and sometimes out of your own comfort zone and into challenging areas. Mm -hmm. Well, and you mentioned technology, and it was 1993 that you guys established the Internet Presence. And there's an interesting story behind that, too, the $10,000 uh, yes, I had a <laughs> I had a, a staff person come to me from the technical bookstore, which was the only store that had a database of its inventory in our company. And uh, he said, you know, are you familiar with the Internet? And I said, well, you know what I read in the newspaper, it's about it. And he said, well, we can um, put up our inventory on the Internet. Can't sell things at that point. You were you were flamed if you tried to sell anything. But you could let people know you had these books, and um, then they could, you know, come to you or write you or whatever. And uh, how would I feel about it? And I said, well, what's involved? And he said, well, he said, I can do the work. You know, I need the equipment and some time. And I said, you know, what would that cost? And he said he thought about $10,000. And I thought, why not? You know, uh, it seems like a coming thing, and, and we want to be in, involved if it could fit for us. And so he proceeded to do that. I got, he hadn't been up all that long, and a letter came in the mail from England from a customer who said, I was, you know, interested in buying a technical book. Uh, I, I inquired in England, and they said it would be $90 book, and it would take uh, six weeks for me to get it. And he said, I decided I would look on the Internet. You had the book in stock for $45, and I had it in three days. And he said, I'm very happy. And I thought, well, you're happy. The world, <laughs> the world ought to be happy with this. <laughs> I got pretty excited. And so then we started the process of putting all the bookstores online. That took 14 months. Yes. It was uh, uh, a lot of work uh, because we had what we called the lake and the river. The lake was the existing store. And then the river was every book that came in daily. So we had to capture the books as they came in, plus retro convert the books that were already in the store. And that took over a year, but we got it up and running, and there were some really great years on the internet, but then it got more complicated, more competitive, and it's still very important, but it's not quite what it was. Yeah. I mean, there have been a lot of uh, ways that you guys have maintained uh, sort of your presence, you know, whether it's expanding the brick and mortar to the internet presence. And then there was something that you guys brought in a couple of years ago, print on demand, the, the espresso book machine that 
takes it from digital print. I mean, yes. well, we don't have the espresso book. You don't have anymore. Any no, right. no, it wasn't that. Um, All right, well, <laughs> that'll be the part that we edit. Yeah, we cut that out. Yes, <laughs> we got rid of that about a year. We'll ago. edit that out. Yeah. Well, I mean, the point of that is that there are are often suggestions of new ways to do things, yes. and and if you don't put your foot not just your toe but several feet in the yeah. water yeah. and you test it experiment. and yeah. you have to experiment because you don't know which one's going to prove out and yeah. uh, on surface it seemed like that was a good idea it turned out to be a lot of inhibitors to it and it, it never caught on and uh and we so we tried selling ebooks as well and and devices in the store we thought well let's give this a shot everyone right. else is doing it maybe there's something here for our customers but sort of the same Thing. We learned, you know, it's just not who we are. It's not what people come to us for. It doesn't add anything to the Powell's experience. I was going to say. It, yeah, it's just not. People go to Powell's to go to Powell's, mm -hmm. to touch the books, to look at the books, um, and to read the books, and to buy the books. You know, I've got friends who uh, live in Minnesota, and they came out, and one of the things they did, you know, they spent the day at Powell's. People mm -hmm. come to Portland, and they spend the day at Powell's yes. at the destination. Yeah, we have cab drivers tell us that people coming in from the airport don't even go to their hotel and just say, you can drop me off at the bookstore. And oh, that's hilarious. Or folks who bring their, their suitcase of books and they take those suitcase <laughs> to the used book buying counter, sell them, and then fill it up again and leave to go back to their, you know, if they're coming through regularly. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, 2010, Emily, is when uh, you took over and when you got demoted <laughs> to the warehouse worker. I think of myself as being promoted to my true ability. <laughs> <You're level>. true. <laughs> well, there, there was You're also a calling. funny quote that I saw uh, about you, Mike, when you were going to uh, the warehouse. And wasn't it an employee that said that that's what you're best suited for? <laughs> yes, right. I'm sure those of you who know who I am. But, uh, yeah, no, I I know I'm having a good time, and I express that and my enthusiasm for what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I like showing them occasional odd fine. And, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose. I don't know what they think, to tell you the truth, but they seem <laughs> amused by it. Well, and you're also, you're not just in, in, in the uh, warehouse, but you're also looking at larger buys. You know, we talked about this before the microphones came on. Uh, you know, there were 7,000 books uh, that you purchased from the library of Anne Rice, and there are other ventures like that. Yeah, the, the company's always out. It's not just me. And yeah. In fact, the Anne Rice collection was folks at Burnside store. Um, but, you know, the word's out that we're, we're interested in buying private collections and, and inventories from um, uh, stores that are closing or any other large book inventory. And, and some of those I get involved in, I just... Did one out of Albany, New York. It was a, a store that had closed down. Uh, the books were interesting, and uh, we bought them. The thing that was fun about that, among other things, was it was in, he had moved the books to his home, and he had two or three outbuildings. And in one of the outbuildings, he had a private airplane. It was unusual. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we just recently bought uh, a large part of a used bookstore out of Auburn, Washington. It was about uh, 70,000 books involved. Those are fun and important. Um, sometimes they're quite small buys, and but the books are interesting and mm -hmm. um, worthy. There was a book when I was a boy called Paddle to the Sea, and it always stuck with me, and it was a children's classic, and it starts with a native Canadian carving a canoe and Indian and puts it in the water, and it goes down the streams and finally finds its way to the ocean. But it doesn't get to the ocean without people along the way kind of nudging it back into the water. And I like to think that's kind of how, what we're doing with books. We find them in closets and basements and warehouses and, and 
or stores that aren't doing well, and we get them back into the mainstream and, and nudge them on their way and give them a life that they might not have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. The popular imagination would have us think that the book business is all about the bestsellers and then your Times top 10 list, and if it's not, it doesn't fit in a Borders or a Barnes & Noble or something like that, then that's sort of the end of the story, when of course the reality is far deeper and richer, and as a result, we get to have a large appetite you know, mm-hmm. as a business to fuel that. People will say to me, you know, did you envision creating a store like it is? And I said, no, never. That was never our uh, conscious ambition. But there was always just more um, books to display and customers expressed interest. And I I like to say that, you know, I didn't build a bookstore. Emily didn't build a bookstore. The customers built a bookstore. We just provided the nails. Mm -hmm. And we didn't put anything in their way. You know, we didn't yeah. say this is big enough. We're not going to stop here. We'll just keep going if you if you want to keep going. The other thing I'm particularly proud of is that we never said that there was a class of book that people was beneath our dignity to, to handle, you know. And one can think of a c- couple of areas, romance novels, westerns, um, books on religion. Uh, traditional bookstores didn't do a very good job with, uh, with those. And we have a huge section now on uh, books on... Um, Christianity and other religions, and we do a, a decent job with romances and westerns and all of the kind of peripheral areas that some bookstores would uh, ignore. And uh, I, the joke I often say is that if there was a catastrophic event in 10,000 years, somebody came from Mars and excavated a bookstore in Kansas City, they would say, I don't know a whole lot about what was going on here, but I can tell you the dominant religion was Buddhism because traditional bookstores just didn't do Christian books, mm-hmm. and they left that to the Christian community, and um, we thought of that as a missed opportunity, and, and it was and is, and it it is important to me that people find something that engages them, and, you know, I, it's not that I want to sell them all Plato or Tolstoy. I, I'm perfectly thrilled that they're finding, you know, mysteries and westerns and whatever it is that engages them. So that we're providing them the entertainment and the information and the inspiration that books can provide. Well, and you know, Emily, you're a mother of a young son. I've got two boys, and my second one, he was into graphic novels. And as much as I wanted him maybe to steer somewhere else, he was into graphic novels and he yeah. was reading graphic novels. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, he moved out of that into other books. But that's the thing: is you know, meet people where they're at in yes. their love of books. And if you can get them excited about whatever it is. I think what you're both talking about is being fully respectful of every individual that walks through the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not every retail institution is. Or they choose, you know, Mm -hmm. their customers. And we don't want to do that. Yeah. And that's the beauty of books. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be a book lover (laughs) to want to read a book. Yeah. And and there's something for everybody, Mm -hmm. whatever that is. We're now in 2018. A few years ago, Emily, you stepped down as chief executive yes. to focus on, you know, long-term strategy. And no, I stepped down in 2000 and whatever because I wanted to have room to have a kid and get <laughs> to be home some of the time taking yeah. care of him. And we do have this other part of our business, which is the real estate um, behind some of our properties and a few other projects and that has some responsibilities. So I was trying to figure out how to fit all of those under my umbrella yeah yeah as a as a mom in particular uh there are lots of challenges when you're working outside of the house as well as Mm -hmm. inside of the house Mm -hmm. but there are changes afoot so miriam is retiring in january and 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 further i mean 50 years is coming up and the next 50 is on the horizon just like it is for us 
what kinds of things are you thinking about as you look into the future of Powell's? Well, uh, the challenge in many ways is the same as it's ever been. Mm-hmm. You know, I say to people, in many ways, the book business hasn't changed a lot since the Gutenberg Bible. You know, we think it has. There's certainly Amazon, and we're buying and selling in different places in different ways. But basically, someone writes a book and prints a few copies, and it sells some, and publishers say, well, that kind of worked. Let's do more of that one and less of the other one, and we get what we can get and pick some good ones and sometimes some not-so-good ones and put them out there and people come in and buy them and take them away and it hasn't changed that much so our challenge is to be better over time um, at how we interact with our customers and how we um, provide what they're looking for without them noticing that we've done anything Mm -hmm. differently along the way because the minute you walk in and say whoa this has changed is the minute you know fewer people are comfortable or feel the same sense of ownership um, that they had in the past over our business. And my dad mentioned this earlier, but I do think that's one of the keys to our success, that the community truly feels ownership over Powell's. And so I'm very conscious that whatever the future looks like, that ownership needs to be preserved and respected. And, and it's true. It's not just folks coming here by themselves, heading from the airport to Powell's. It's, you know, when I have friends come to my house and stay at my house, I'm showing off Portland, and I'm taking them to the Rose Garden and to Multnomah Falls and mm-hmm. to Powell's mm-hmm. because it's part of uh, Portland. It's part of the community. When one of my tasks when I was in that first job in the marketing department was answering customer emails and of a particular variety, and I was struck by how regularly we'd receive messages that would say something like, I'm so uh, upset with you because my favorite author has been moved from the bottom, you know, rung over here to the top over here and I can't reach it. Or I'm so upset because you've renamed this subject this and I disagree with how you've named that. Or it's in this subject in this store and in that subject in that store and those are both wrong. Um, and to me, that's truly ownership. That's This is my author. This is the space I go to to read and I want it to be in the way that I think reflects me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty phenomenal. Not very many businesses get to have that relationship with our customers. What are you excited about moving forward? You know, this is where my my dad and I are a little different, and I'm so grateful that he does the work he does, because my focus is always on people, and Mm -hmm. his is on the books and the inventory. So for me, it's always um, about, and will continue as as we move forward, thinking about how do we continue to help grow um, our employees, to help them uh, find the learning opportunities, um, the challenges that are interesting. that we need, you know, we need that growth. We need those uh, folks who want to rise to challenges so that the good ideas continue to burble up, you know, because most of what my dad talked about, even his father putting new and used in the same store or the gentleman coming from the tech store and saying, how about the internet? Those came from folks who are on the, on the floor, you know. Yeah. So my job is to make sure I'm really listening very well all around the business and have the right people in the right positions and they feel uh, supported and heard and, um so that we can keep moving forward. Um, because it's not just uh, Portland residents, Portland area residents who have ownership. It certainly is, um, uh, you know, all of your employees. Yes, it's all of our employees. It's all of our customers. It's all of the authors who come. Right. We have 500 approximately events for authors a year. You know, I don't remember the math of how many people attended, but it's, you know, 10,000. You know, mm-hmm. in, in the course of a year, uh, we've had a lot of um, touch points with a lot of different people who aren't Portland residents. Um, so it's a very wide gamut. Um, and I think that each of those contacts has a meaningful impact. You know, sometimes it's a negative impact. <laughs> we try to mitigate those. But um, 
So I think we have a pretty important job to do. And my job is to make sure we're doing it well and we can hand this business off to the next generation in a, in a thriving state of health. Well, Mike and Emily, thanks for coming in today. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Yeah, always fun to talk to you, Dan. <laughs> Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Mike and Emily Powell. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.